Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietney. So we have this letter from Tim Beckley at Apple. No, Tim Beckley from New York. Yeah, he's an engineer at Apple Computer, the fine maker of personal electronics products. Well, I think he wishes he were because he struggles hard. Steve Jobs and uh, Steve Wozniak back in the original days in the garage with Dan Cockey? Well, you know what? I think he was hiding in the garage. I think he might have been involved with the translation of that breakout game they were doing for Atari. I think he might have done some of the low-level controller uh, coding. When it comes to Tim Beckley, it's very low-level. Yeah, no, I think he worked on the drivers for the original Apple IIc for the uh, <laughs> 80-column adapter. I think that was, wasn't that, yeah, he, yeah, I know who he is. He invented the abacus machine for the Chinese. Wasn't that Bill Gates? Well, I think it comes to a close race there, but I think Beckley was... So what does Beckley have to do with the Apple tablet being announced on January 27th at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco, California? I don't know. Let's look at the letter he sent us, okay? Okay. He says, unless Cooper told two versions of what happened, he did not see the saucer land. I know because he called me on the phone to set the record straight about some things he thought I had said on a radio program, which turned out someone had misquoted him on. I spoke to him for about half an hour. If you check on the net, a lot of posts quote the incident directly from my book MJ-12 and the riddle of Hangar 18. I typeset that book, by the way. On an Apple computer? On a Macintosh computer? I sure did, on a Macintosh 2CI. Yeah, that's a 2CI, so it's not Apple Computer. It's the new Apple. They changed their name in order to broaden the appeal of their consumer electronics offerings and not to pigeonhole themselves anymore as a microcomputer company because they saw a decrease in the potential market for microcomputers. So with the success of the iPhone and their music player, the iPod platform, as well as the proliferation and success of iTunes as a digital music retailer, Basically, they they moved away from the Apple computer uh, branding, per se. If I click the mouse, will you let me talk? Sure. Okay. Very soft mouse click. Continuing, Beckley says, He was stationed at Edwards when the object landed. The craft was photographed and the film was turned over to him. He screened it several times. It was shown on the dry lake bed resting on landing gear, and then it shot up. It was not one of ours, he maintains. He also believed in crash disks, and he was involved in an incident over Germany where they came over the base two or three days in a row and were picked up on radar and gave chase. He didn't see them land. I also want to see that letter. I know what Cooper told me personally. What he's talking about is a letter from John Carpenter where he says he has a letter confirming that he saw the landed UFO, Gordon Cooper. And, of course, Beckley says, no, it didn't happen. But even more interesting is this message in our forums from Christopher O'Brien, who's a book author and has been on the show before. He said, I met John back in 1996 when we both spoke in Missouri at the Show Me UFO conference. He had just returned from Varginha, Brazil, and gave an interesting talk about the still ongoing case. He struck me as a really sweet, bright, dedicated investigator, and his abduction work is arguably the best in the business. But having said this, I heard rumblings back in 2000 that business was how he viewed the confidential medical files of the 130 to 140 abduction victims that he had worked with since 1990. According to sources that I know, Carpenter sold his abduction files to Bigelow, that guy, the that rich guy. Really? 
really for $14,000. Now, I've never talked to John directly about this, and it seems highly out of character, but it would have been interesting to hear David, Mike Wallace, Bietney get to the bottom of that particular lurid story. Now, the other thing he says, and it's unfortunate because if Chris had told us this a week or two ago, we could have asked. As to Stringfield's work, I always felt that there was quite a bit of disinfo sprinkled through his data. He may have been too chummy with some questionable types and may have been let down the garden path a bit. But having said that, he was still the top expert in the subject, and I recommend his book, The UFO Siege. I corresponded with him back in 1993 about a crash retrieval case I heard about that occurred in the Great Sand Dunes, San Luis Valley in 1969 that was witnessed by two Stanford University archaeologists and their son. He thanked me for the info but never followed up on it. He died a year or so later, if I remember correctly. So, there we go. It looks like John Carpenter, as far as I'm concerned, was a pretty straight-ahead guy, but there are a couple of question marks there. I like his movies. Escape from New York was really good. Escape from L.A. just didn't really work, except it did have in the sequence where there were those surfers that had a butthole surfers record, which I thought was a song, which I thought was like the best part of the movie. Also, the other thing about Escape from L.A. was that the effects supervisor for it or the effects producer was this woman who had worked on Hook and she was a nightmare. She used to come into the into the Hook digital offices and stand in the middle of the room and like scream. It was like unbelievable how how de- sort of deranged she was. There was also the rumor at the time that oh, I shouldn't talk about rumors on the show about the movie industry. You so, say, yeah, John Carpenter. Um, he was married to Adrian Barbeau. Did you know that? I think we're talking about the wrong John Carpenter here. The movie director, yeah, John well, Carpenter, who we well, had on the show. No, that was John Carpenter, the UFO investigator. No, no, no. It was John Carpenter, the movie director. Don't you remember I told you the whole story about Adrian Barbeau? Oh, oh wait, we didn't tell it on the air. That's right. So now the listener is going to say, what is he talking about? Um, and I guess we're not going to tell him. No. So what does all this have to do with Apple Computer? I'm, I'm a little confused, Gene. I think you're on the wrong show. This is the Paracast. I'm sorry? This is the Paracast. Um, this is the Internet. What do you mean? Okay, this it's is on the, the internet. internet, but the radio show is the Paracast. The ra- I'm talking to no you on the Internet. No, we're talking on the voice over IP uh, uh, telephony software, Skype. That's on the Internet. That I, What's this Para thing you're talking about? Okay, it's Para Internet. Okay. I'm a little confused today. I, I'm not sure what we're going with this. You know what? It doesn't matter, does it? None of this matters, Gene. That's right. I mean, nothing That's matters. That's the sad part. That's true. I mean, we could basically talk about this all day long, and it doesn't matter. I so mean, why bother doing the show anymore? Seriously? Because I think it matters to a lot of people, and I think it matters to you, but you're just not in the mood to admit that. I what think matters to me? This show? Absolutely. You know, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Maybe I should just be quiet for the rest of the episode. I think that a lot of listeners would like that, so we'll do that. Okay, so basically, you're going to basically feed messages to me about the questions I ask. No. You're not going to do that? No. Okay. I'm going to beg out for the day, if that's okay. I'll tell you what, instead of doing that, let's not talk about UFOs for this show. Let's talk about other stuff. About Apple Apple Incorporated? There's a guy named David Roundtree. Who's a Does he have a guitar? I don't know. I have to ask him. Well, but he is the director and chief that. science advisor, scientific paranormal investigative research information and technology. The short term of that is Spirit Lab. Hmm. It's not about UFOs. 
So, yes, we can have you on the show, and you don't have to talk about UFOs. You don't have to talk about John Carpenter. You don't have to talk about Gordon Cooper, Tim Beckley, Chris O'Brien, or even Leonard Stringfield or Donald Keogh. I was talking Keogh. about Apple. I don't know what you're talking about. I was talking about Apple, the consumer electronics company that makes a fine line of media consumption devices. We can do that, too, this week. Let's just do that instead. Let's just bail on them. Nah. Yeah, come on. Nah. Well, I don't know about Eugene, but as is obvious to the listeners, I've already sort of bailed. So, you know. Well, so we will bail more on the other side of the PowerCast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You hear it on TV. You hear it on radio. Cash for gold. Yes, it's an enticing phrase during these challenging days, but the real question is how much cash are you going to get for your gold and silver? Are you going to get the best value? Well, you can get the best price from a company whose owners have decades of experience in the business. Welcome to Goldbug. The folks at Goldbug warn you that many of those high-budget gold buyers are paying far less than you deserve for your gold and silver. Goldbug will give you top dollar each and every time. To learn more, call 1-866-596-6134. That number again, 1-866-596-6134 for Goldbug. Or visit us online at goldbug.com. That's Goldbug with two Gs, goldbug.com. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? So we're going to be speaking with uh, David Roundtree today, and um, he has a really interesting and diverse background in researching the paranormal, don't you, David? <laughs> Could you qualify that? What's what's your background in in this stuff? Well, I I, I don't think anybody can ever really be qualified at paranormal investigating. Uh, I Amen. do, on the other hand, have a pretty good mix of skill sets that I brought into this uh, experiment. I call it. I come from background electronic engineering. Also have uh, acoustic and audio engineering background. So. I come into it with an engineering mindset and technical skill sets that at least give me an upper hand on trying to understand some of the things that I come into contact with, and it's served me pretty well up to this point. But 
Basically, the group that I work with, I mean, everyone in the group has some type of scientific discipline that they bring to the table. So we bounce a lot of things off of each other's heads, hopefully without creating a concussion or anything, but to try to come up with uh, very real answers to some of the things that we encounter. Tell us about the group, if you would. Well, the group started out, uh, there's two people in the group, John and myself, who started out in another group. What is the group? Uh, let's let's get that on the table, David. The uh, the investigative group that we have is called New Jersey Paranormal Resource Group, njprg.com. Um, and basically, that's kind of like the arm that does the investigating and the actual evidence collecting. I actually have a lab that I run that we actually do analysis, and we actually try to duplicate some of the conditions that we encounter in the field to try to come up with an answer for what's really going on. So between the actual collecting evidence in a live situation or dead, which, whichever the way it may, uh, may come out, um, we also try to either duplicate those experiences or we try to come up with a logical explanation for some of the things that we encounter. Of course, we don't always do that. So what we have left is what we consider to be something of a paranormal nature. Okay, let's kind of maybe define this a little bit, David. And I guess we can call him David R. and David B. or something to separate the two Davids with us today. Okay, David R. <laughs> no, actually, why don't you just call me um, call me Rush? <laughs> just call me Rush, and I'll know you're speaking about me. Okay, Mr. Limbaugh. I'm serious. No, just call me Rush. No, I just I, I said Rush. Okay, Rush. Sounds like a rock band. Okay, David, let's seriously, looking at the focus, you say paranormal. Where are we going with this? We're talking about ghosts. We're talking about UFOs. What are the various well, subjects you deal with? Yeah, when, when I speak of paranormal, I'm referring to a specific area of paranormal research that has to do with a phenomenon known as haunting. I, when I first started out 33 years or so ago, I looked at everything I could get my hands on, uh, I found out very quickly there's not enough time in the day or hours in the week or whatever to be able to do that because each individual aspect of the paranormal really requires a different set of skill sets. While there are you know some things that they have in common, there are other things that apply you know pretty much specifically to that area. For example, like cryptozoography, uh, I would be a lousy person to work on that because I don't have the background in biology. Um, well, actually, yeah, you would be bad because it's, it's actually cryptozoology. So, yeah. But, uh, but the point of the whole thing is, is that at, at, at a point along my research, I realized that I was going to have to very narrowly define what I was going to actually start looking at if I was going to look at anything at all. And uh, that's when I chose to go towards the uh, the uh, phenomena that people call the haunting. And that's when I started really focusing my attention at that. That took place in the 80s, the early 80s. Since then, I've been focusing on that realm of the paranormal ever since. And with a specialization in acoustic analysis, are you going in and recording anomalous sound events, aural events, and then analyzing them? Well, it, it, it served me well because I determined that electronic voice phenomena, for example, isn't voice at all, and it isn't, it isn't sound at all. Actually, electromagnetic fields in the audio spectrum that the microphone is picking up and recording onto the tape. We've actually used devices that were just basically EMF sensors, and we've recorded uh, what what sounded like audio voices, you know, on a recorder. 
So we've actually determined that sound really has nothing at all to do with EVP whatsoever. It's just that that's the set of frequencies that they appear to manifest at. So that was um, when you originally contacted us, David. It was about it was after we had Doctor Rourke on, Dr. and um, Stephen Rourke. yeah, Doctor Stephen Rourke. And I had made a comment about uh, the idea of using an Earthworks lab mic, a high, you know, really high end mic. And you had written and saying, "Oh no, you, you got this all wrong." Condenser mics are not what you need for this. This is really about using other types of audio capture equipment. So let's try to help people understand this a little bit, because this comes out of my questioning uh, in multiple episodes of the show, the idea of using low-end transcription recorders to capture EVP data, um, something that we have seen on a number of the television shows that purport to do g genuine research. And that always struck me as sort of odd. Yeah, well, um, I wouldn't use low-quality recording equipment ever. The reason that, uh, and we actually do use, like, Earthworks microphones, mm -hmm. but the reason that we do that is to establish a pure audio content for comparison. It's like a room tone or a noise floor. So you're sort right. of, right, okay. What we find is the condenser mic captures every noise in the room, but it doesn't capture EVPs. So we can actually take and run that channel and then compare it to a channel where there's a really good dynamic mic that's been used, and you can actually see the EVP stand out in the comparison against the two waveforms. So uh, we started using it a while ago. We use like a, um, I use like a Tascam. I have a, a battery of these Tascam recorders, digital recorders, mm -hmm. and they're, they're nice units. They're several hundred dollars a piece. They have a built-in electroset microphone, but what we do is we put a condenser mic on one channel, and then we put a dynamic mic on the other, and then we record it on a, on a stereo recording so that we are able to come back and we pan one mic all the way to one channel and one mic all the way to the other channel so that it's about as pure as we can get of each mic on each channel. That way we can come back and play back the, the recording after the fact and we can do an A-B comparison of the two recordings. And anything that isn't recorded on the condenser mic but is recorded on the dynamic mic stands out just like a neon sign pretty much because you've got this entire waveform there that doesn't exist on the other microphone. Because condenser mics don't respond to sound pressure level, they respond to changes in capacitance. So consequently, what we have found is is that we do get some recorded noise from the capacitor microphones because there is apparently a change in capacitance that occurs when this EVP begins to transmit, but it isn't in the frequency of the EVP itself. It's more like someone turning on a switch and turning off a switch. So mm -hmm. you get like a click on the, on the uh, condenser mic, and then you get the actual EVP on the dynamic mic. So something does actually happen that changes the condenser, uh, the uh, capacitance of the air uh, around the microphones, but you're not actually recording the capacitance changes from someone talking. It's almost like someone opens a door and you're picking up that click from the door opening. So it, it sounds like on a technical level, the condenser mic is definitely more sensitive to overall... Uh, sensitive to sound, absolutely. Right. Right. Absolutely. And and like I say, if you can afford to use an Earthworks mic, that's a great baseline to put down for comparison because you know you're not going to get an EVP with it, but you're going to get every bit of audio that's in the environment. 
And there are two kinds of phenomena. There are actually audible voice phenomena as well. There are actually things that you hear that actually make sound that you can't explain. And the thing that's kind of neat about that is, is that requires mass to move air. So somewhere, somehow, you've got a partial manifestation, a physical manifestation that's just enough to at least move air to make a noise. So you have to keep that in mind as well. So there's actually two kinds of phenomena you deal with, the kind that you can hear and the kind that only the machine picks up. So now let's relate this back, David, to this idea that so many of the people doing EVP work seem to be using these very low-end like transcription recorders that I'm guessing probably, A, do indeed use condenser microphones. They would sort of need to, I'm guessing, or electric, electric microphones because of the size of them and the fact that they have to be sensitive enough, for example, to turn on or off based on incoming audio signal. Um, someone had sent us an email talking about how the reason that researchers use those kinds of devices was because the noise floor of them, the amount of noise that they generate, they claimed creates a medium, a transmission medium in which... Yeah, I think, I, I think they've sniffed uh, car exhaust for too long. Well, that's the story they're giving you. That's sort of what I thought. Uh, I thought, well, that doesn't... Really? I mean, it's using... I mean, you got to think of it this way. Why in the world would you add to a noise floor to artificially add information to a tape when you can get a perfectly good and clean EVP by not doing any of that crap at all. Right. Well, the point also is here, we're talking about when you add to the noise floor, that's distortion. You're adding artifacts to the sound that do not exist, and certainly the intent here, if you want to do this properly, would be to actually have the sound as undistorted as possible, right? Absolutely. As it is, EVPs tend to occur just above the natural noise floor. So it's difficult enough to pull them out of the background without using some type of device that adds to that background. What we try to do is we try to use the cleanest equipment possible. We try to reduce background noise as much as possible. Uh, and this includes turning out electrical appliances and lights to reduce 60 cycles in the air to try to reduce some of the EMF that's naturally occurring in the house. So. My question would be to them is why in the world would, A, you want to add something to your tape, which immediately renders it scientifically unsound and not acceptable yep. as evidence, number one, and number two, make it very, very difficult for you to understand anything you captured in the first place. This it is one of the things, happen. of course, that we get <laughs> hit upon here on the PowerCast. We say, gee, you ought to have decent equipment. Well, well you Right, and and, and let me just. What happens with the cheap recorders? They use these like these cheap recorders that are made by Sony or, or whatever. And for one thing, they have a terrible signal to noise ratio to start with. Right. So you're already picking up a lot of static and crap that a normal high higher costing device filters out. Number one. So you're immediately by going to a more expensive recorder, you're reducing the background crap that's present because of built-in filters of the unit. And it also filters out any kind of stray audio you might get from, uh, you know, a, a radio signal that is 
demodulized and you're picking up bits and pieces of audio from that or like that crap they're peddling that's called Frank Frank's box that is essentially randomly tuning up and down an AM dial and picking out a word or a phonetic response here or there. And yeah, putting whoa, it whoa, whoa, whoa. Would you explain that in more detail? Because that, <laughs> you know, my mind is boggling. Picture this. You're on the phone with a client or colleague trying to explain something visual, a PowerPoint, a keynote presentation, a website. But it's frustrating because they can't see what you're talking about. The solution? Good news. They can if you invite them to an online meeting using GoToMeeting. Then they can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so you can show them what you're talking about. I use GoToMeeting all the time to collaborate with colleagues and with clients. You can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days, but you must visit GoToMeeting slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for free 30-day trial. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have David Roundtree, and he represents the New Jersey Paranormal Resource Group. And we're looking into hauntings, and now you're talking about something that I need a little more clarification on, David. Explain. Well, there's a couple of things out there that people are using, uh, like Frank's Box or like Radio Shack Hack Jobs. Oh, Radio Shack Hack Jobs. I'm just feeling the love here. Yeah, well, what they do is they take a radio that has an auto-tuner in it, they put it on the AM dial, and they lift the ground so that it constantly tunes back and forth. So you're essentially, it'd be like sitting in your car with the AM radio on and rapidly tuning the tuning knob back and forth. If you've ever done that as a kid or anything else, you've, you've had some really funny things to occur. You could actually build sentences and have things say things that are just totally random words and phonetics put together. In the English language, we have about a 62% chance of making sense doing that with the English language. That's why most of these EVPs that are captured on these devices are in English regardless of what country you're in in the world picking it up because English tends to make words a lot easier than other languages do. And it's it's absolute all bunk. I mean, it's people have designed this crap to separate a rube from their money, and, and that's what they're using it for. It, it almost sounds, David, like you're describing some kind of a spread-spectrum modulating scanner, and except for a spread-spectrum transmission device, there's basically some kind of a handshake so that at the end of it, you can actually assemble real data. But you're, you're sort of talking about the spread spectrum approach with no encoding, which would yeah, sort of... Yeah, what they're doing is, is it's not even that fancy. All they're <laughs> doing is taking an AM radio tuning chip. They're over-biasing the control bias on the tuning circuit so that it continues to randomly tune back and forth up the AM dial. Now, they don't do this with FM or any other thing because guess what's on AM radio? Talk radio. So you have the most words being generated on a band on that specific band wave. And it's, you know what's frightening about that is how many stations at the same time in different parts of the country or different parts of your area have the same shows? That's exactly right. 
That's exactly right. That's the point right there. Why do we have to hear the same lousy talk show repeated on 10 different stations in related markets? But that's another story. Well, that certainly brings up another point altogether. So when you guys go out and research something, David, so you hear about activity in a house. How do you qualify the process of figuring out whether whether or not that's something you even want to look into? What's the, what, how, what does this usually uh, consist of, the, the process of figuring out how to throw resources at a situation? Yeah, the, fir- the first thing we try to do is, is uh, we do what we call a preliminary investigation. And all that is is basically me or somebody else or a couple of us will go to the house in question and we basically interview the person. And we talk about what they're experiencing, what's going on, mm-hmm. you know, what times of day it occurs, uh, does it occur on a regular basis. We try to get as much information about what's going on as we can. Based on those interviews, and we take pictures while we're there, and we run a recorder. And based on, you know, pictures that we take and the recordings that we get and the information we get on the interview, we'll determine whether we feel that it's warranted to come back with some equipment. Like I said, most of the time we can find a problem. If it's a natural problem, we find it during the preliminary investigation. Like if somebody has a, uh, a high level of uh, carbon monoxide in their house due to a faulty heater or there's a high level of carbon dioxide or there's a high level of, say, radon gas, uh, we can generally determine from what people are explaining to us if that may be a problem, and we can look for that right then and there. And then if we find something that's rather unhealthy, we bring that to that person's attention and we say, hey, you know, get this fixed. If this doesn't take care of the problem, you know, call us back. And uh, usually... When we find something like that, that takes care of the problem. You'd be amazed at some of the stuff that we find. I mean, we find things where people have got old paint cans that are open down in their basement, and they're seeing things and having hallucinations, and it's like no wonder, because when you walk down in the basement, you can't breathe for the paint fume. So we tell these people, you know, you need to ventilate this basement, you know, do this, do that, or we'll find electrical problems where the actual electrical service is giving off a tremendous amount of EMF, and uh, because it's unbalanced, and they'll balance it out, and that usually takes care of, like I say, about 90% of the problems. So, of course, so a lot of these problems then are generated by either they're inhaling the wrong substance or they're susceptible to some kind of electromagnetic radiation that's causing them exactly. to see or hear things that aren't there. For, for example, we had an old woman that called us. Every time she went to take her bath, um, she heard a voice coming out of her bathtub. And uh, we did some investigating of the area, and she lived next to an AM transmitting tower. And, of course, she would fill up her tub to about three-quarters full, but as she stepped in, the water level would rise to resonance with the AM station, and she would hear Rush Limbaugh coming through, you know, the radio. Oh, God. The so, oh wait, wait a minute here. We're talking about Rush Limbaugh. She goes into her <laughs> bathtub, and she hears Rush Limbaugh. And of course Is that a typical out. Rush Limbaugh listener, by the way? That's how they hear his show in the bathtub? Yeah, I, I, I couldn't answer that, but uh, that was a particular case that we ran into to where the actual bathtub created a resonant, ter- you know, resonant tank circuit, and she actually picked up the broadcast from the AM radio. And it scared the bejesus out of her, and, and who wouldn't be scared on something like that? And she couldn't understand it. So uh, our solution was to only fill the tub half full before she got into it, and she never had any more trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Gee, I wonder if if the ghost hunter guys would have figured that out, eh, given that they're plumbers? Well, they're plumbers. They're plumbers.
summers. Right? I, I think mean, they uh, might know that. Yeah, <laughs> you would think. Well, I mean, that's a typical example of something that is kind of freaky to experience, but is absolutely a natural explanation for it. Right. So, what about the other do, end of the spectrum, David? What have you? What, tell us about a couple of cases where you've run into stuff that really, really convinced you that you're dealing with anomalous data. Well, I, I, I've met a person, you know, that, have, that has come to us, and they're absolutely sincere. I mean, you can usually look at someone and tell if they've, you know, missed their medication or if they're really sincere. And uh, I've come across people who've had children, and the children tend to be susceptible more so than the adults are. Uh, in a house, and it got to the point where in this one case where a, a child would not even go into their bedroom anymore. We did in some investigation, and there was some activity occurring in the house that we couldn't explain. Uh, there was some telekinesis type stuff going on, and the kid was below puberty. I mean, the kid was like five or six years old. Mm. We uh, could not explain it in natural terms. In other words, we could not find a natural explanation for what was going on. Um, and those are the kind of things, when a child is involved, they're the easiest ones to debunk as well as to find out that there's really something going on. Well, what was going on in that case, though? In that particular case, it turns out that a person who had built the house and who had owned it all their life had died at, 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 in this kid's bedroom. Mm. And they seem to think that there's some kind of residualness that was left over, some kind of residual energy. And literally, we would go in there, and there would be uh, uh, EMF rates you know, in, in the brainwave spectrum, like 2 hertz, 3 hertz, 14 hertz, like beta waves. And there was no, uh, no identifiable source for them. They would pretty much just appear in the center of the room uh, with no uh, apparent source. And uh, that kind of violates a lot of the physics. So when we encounter something like that, of course, that's led to further research where we've actually developed this uh, EMF direction finding setup where we've got three triangulating coils mm. that allow us to monitor waveforms so that we know what the frequency is and then we know what the strength of it is. And by adjusting those three coils, we can determine the actual point of origin in a room, much like a radio direction finder used to do. I guess the question comes down to this, though, and that is, what are they hearing? Are they hearing voices of the dead? Are they picking up on something that maybe is happening somewhere else in another well, city know, or could, another house? What? If I could definitively answer that, I'd be a very rich man. Well. And I'm not a very rich man. <laughs> but we do have some leads. We do have some interesting leads. It is appearing, and I've talked to several of my physicist friends about this, some of the information we're getting. Now, we monitor about 17 different aspects of the environment, including radiation, alpha, beta, as well as gamma radiation. What tends to happen at the beginning of this event is that we get a 350 millirad burst of gamma radiation. That's pretty much like a major annihilation occurring of uh, matter or antimatter or uh, a small thermonuclear explosion. And yet we don't witness a small thermonuclear explosion. So we're getting this, this gamma radiation burst. And then we have a lot of other things that occur, like ion counts dramatically increase. Uh, the ability of the air to conduct electricity dramatically increases. We get background static electricity that increases very dramatically. And it's like, to me, it was like someone opened a door. And the more we started to research it, we started to realize that it was very possible that we were witnessing a Lorentzian wormhole opening up in a terrestrial environment. In other words, a wormhole opening up in a very localized area that allowed matter and energy to transfer. 
and the fact that the matter in our area was mixing with this exotic matter from some other area was creating these annihilations, which created the uh, gamma radiation. Now, we have successfully been able to duplicate this three times in an area that was reported to be haunted. So we're still a long ways from proving that that's what it is. But it's pretty encouraging that once we started to try to rig up a way of detecting this type of behavior, we were able to start seeing it more. So the, the bottom line in it is, is there's some kind of portal opening up that allows this stuff to go back and forth for a brief period of time, and then it stops for no particular reason, meaning the condition is a dynamic condition that is constantly changing. So otherwise, we would have haunting stuff going on all the time, 24-7, which we don't. This stuff comes and goes with no particular rhyme or reason to it. So when you do actually capture it happening and you can get all the background data, it really looks like someone's opened the door and let something in. Okay, so what are they opening the door to? Are they opening it to the afterlife, to another location here? To, let's say, look, we're opening a wormhole or some transportation. It could be anywhere in the universe. That's exactly right. It could be in any other universe parallel to our own. In fact, it's very possible that there is a parallel universe that exists in the same spatial realm that ours exists in, but because it vibrates at a higher resonant frequency, we would never see it or ever see any sign of it. But it could theoretically occupy the same space as we are and be invisible to us because we are only tuned into our three dimensions and, you know, the universe that we're vibrating in. So, I, you know, it's, it's a long way for me saying that we're talking to the dead. I, I, I can't say that. I can say that something's going on that we can't explain, and I think it's probably multidimensional or multi-universal is, is what's occurring. Aren't we, uh, though, limiting something here? We're saying we're looking at hauntings, and we're depositing some kind of wormhole or some gateway between this place and the other place. Well, if we're going to open that door... Can't we also put any kind of paranormal encounter as being caused by that? And that takes us to UFOs, it takes us to strange creatures, etc., etc. Well, if this is true, and that's a big if right now, if this is what's happening, it would explain about 90% of the paranormal phenomena experienced all across the board. Because if, say, if a, a crypto creature, the reason we've never found a Bigfoot is because maybe this isn't their home dimension or their home universe. Maybe they just blink in to hunt or they blink in to do whatever and they return to a pre-quantum state once they're done with what they're doing. I mean, it sounds kind of crazy and everything, but if, in fact, these portals do exist and the physicists that I'm talking to are becoming more and more interested in this work that we're doing because they're trying to prove that a wormhole exists at all, period. If we could actually prove that a wormhole exists, it's not just a huge fine for the paranormal, it's a huge fine for, for quantum mechanics. So we've got a lot of support right now from the uh, QM community and what we're doing. And the hope is that we can find some definitive uh, identifier that will allow us to, to find out exactly what it is that's occurring. Now, it may be that these openings are very small, just small enough to allow EMF to come through, or in some cases, some matter could come through. I, I have never witnessed firsthand a full-body apparition, but my wife, on the other hand, has. And I've been doing it way longer than she has. I've just never witnessed one. 
However, if it is a wormhole that's causing it, it is very possible that the energy, say that we're energy when we're alive. When we die, that energy goes on forever. I mean, that, the, the, the laws of thermodynamics tell us that energy is conserved. It goes on forever. So it only would stand to reason if when we die, we become pure energy. The next question would be, do we maintain the totality of our consciousness in that pure energy form. Now, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that says we probably do because, you know, people have had interactions with spirits that were in an active manner. It wasn't like it was static. But we've also had these, what we call a residual type of behavior, which is like peering into the past and seeing a glimpse of something that happened long ago. Both of those things could easily be caused by a wormhole because we've also discovered that there is a time anomaly involved with this sort of phenomena. We actually built a time slip circuit, time differential circuit, which essentially allows you to beat two oscillators. In my case, I was using uh, uh, 7 megahertz oscillators that are like 2%, and then we temperature control the oscillators so they don't change frequency due to temperature changes, and they'll stay at the... Uh, differential frequency of the two because no matter how perfect you get two oscillators there's going to be a difference on them in the case of the one we have there's a 700 hertz differential so you will hear a 700 hertz signal all the time when those two oscillators beat against each other but when this stuff starts happening suddenly it will shift up to 1200 hertz or it will shift up to 1500 hertz which is indicating that time has changed in this area so we're not really sure what exactly that means yet, other than that there's a disturbance in the time flow when these things occur. That being the case, it's very possible that a residual haunt is actually a window that we're allowed to glimpse something from history. And while we're not actually reliving it, we're getting a piece, bits and pieces of it that we're experiencing. And like I so, say, these effects are highly localized. So you can move three feet away from where you're experiencing it and not experience anything at all. So it is a spatial anomaly, not a perceptive anomaly, in that what you're saying is that then um, when people see, let's say, a full-body apparition, that this is potentially, we're not saying this in any kind of definitive fashion, but potentially that is an actual event going on and not just two people having their perception altered to think it's there because what you're saying is that You've been able, with this time differential circuit, to measure uh, some sort of uh, a temporal anomaly that exactly. you can actually quantify and qualify. Exactly. Uh, right. Exactly. So, so what you're suggesting, is, David? Well, it's very common. For example, if you go to like Gettysburg and you witness a platoon of soldiers walking by that haven't walked by in a hundred and some years, you're actually seeing something that happened in the past but it's not really happening now. You're getting a glimpse of something that occurred a long time ago. And and if you think about that, uh, it makes total sense. If, if there's actually a time warp or a time anomaly that occurs, we could get a glimpse of something that went on before us. And just as much in the other direction, it's possible probably to see something that's going to occur. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. 
To receive your free issue of Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. David Roundtree joining us on the Paracast. And we're basically right now entering another universe, aren't we? Now, you mentioned before being able to travel back and forth. Is this something that a creature or some individual can do consciously? Or is it just one of those accidental things? Well, I, I think maybe. I think maybe there are people or creatures that can manipulate it. I think uh, for the most part, for most of us, we don't have that capability, or at least consciously we don't have that capability. And uh, we may put ourselves into a situation where the uh, localized conditions are just such that we become somewhat like the observer effect in quantum mechanics. Whether you see something as a wave or as a particle depends on the observer when they actually take the measurement, um, which has to do with wave-particle duality. Now, a similar thing may occur when we encounter this sort of thing because our makeup as an observer may determine what the makeup is that we witness or what the event is that we witness based on our own makeup, something that we don't even understand yet. Now, what you're basically positing then is that there very well might be people who, for whatever reasons, are more attuned to picking up these kinds of anomalous activities versus others, right? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, we call these people mediums. I believe from my own studies of mediums that they are capable of receiving these transmissions and talk to many, many uh of these people who have had a very high success rate or a high accuracy rate. And I said, when you experience this, you're actually watching a movie in your head, aren't you? And they're like, yeah, that's exactly what we're watching, like a TV broadcast. I believe that these people have the ability to tap into the zero-point energy field, which is essentially a conduit through time and space, and they can get information off of that grid. And probably anybody could if they knew how to manipulate it. But it's not like there's a school you can go to to learn how to manipulate it. Now, that's an important point here. Some people can't. Here in the Paracast, we've made some efforts to try to verify that a medium is really a medium. And we haven't done very well. So how do we verify this information? Because it looks like a lot of these so-called mediums are really looking for so-called dollars and cents. Well, a lot of them are. And the difference I have found is the sincere ones will subject themselves to research for free because they're just as interested in what's occurring to them as you are. So if you get someone who wants you to pay them for the research, there's no sense in even dealing with them. So um, where are these mediums, David? Where are they? 
Where are they? Yeah. I would say uh, I know three in the state of New Jersey that I'm satisfied to the point of where they are uh, fairly accurate. I would say between 76 and 82% of the time they're accurate in their information. Um, and I'd say the rest of them I talk to are full of crap. You know, we've, um, this brings up an interesting point, and I want to mention it at this juncture, because we've had a number of people approach the Paracast about coming on the show and talking about their abilities, people who claim right. to have psychic or you know mediumship abilities. Right. And uh, typically what happens is that uh, we'll say to them, okay, uh, show us. <laughs> Give us a demonstration of this. Show us what you're capable of, and... and Pretty much 100% of the time, for the most part, they, they the response don't. is, yeah, we're not monkeys. We're not going to, we can't do this on command. And it's like, well, we're not saying you can do it on command, but can you do it at all? Right. And so far, there's not been a single one that's taken us up on it, um, on right. this idea of just giving us, give us some proof and, you know, do a successful reading of myself or Gene. That's exactly right. They and, won't do and it. And the thing is, is that the people that I know, that do it, that I've talked to, I've developed personal friendships with. Mm -hmm. And and the thing is, is that this is like anything else. Just like uh, when you have sunspots, it's hard to pick up TV transmissions. There are different things that affect reception quality. Even still, someone who sincerely has the power eventually will give you information that is accurate. And they may not give it to you the first time. And they may not give it to you the second time, but the third, fourth, and fifth time, they may be right on. And then they may have a miss, and then they'll have a hit again, which is you can't quantify these people with a sit-down session. You have to study what they give you over a period of time and then do the math on it. You know, look for the consistencies, look for the inconsistencies. And you got to figure that if a person can do it 60% of the time, that's luck. That's within the realm of being able to pick things out of the top of their head. Right. Once they get beyond that 60%, that's when you have to start looking at it a little more seriously and saying, hey, maybe there's something to it. Now, I, buy, I am by no means advocating the use of psychics. However, uh, my wife is what I call a sensitive she doesn't do anything for a living. She doesn't charge anyone anything for it. She just likes to feel the situations and try to add to what's going on. She's been very good about filling in blank information when we do an investigation, and then we've gone back doing uh, historical studies and found out that some of the stuff she gave us was right on the money. So I'm not saying that they are the end-all, be-all. I'm saying that if you find a psychic or a medium that has a good percentage ratio, they can add a fundamental tool to your cadre as far as looking at the situation. Now, their evidence doesn't stand up by themselves, but if they can give you something that you can later correlate with other evidence, then it also becomes a piece of that puzzle. Because surely if something can manifest itself here on this earth to people that don't know wit or will about any of that and yet also to someone who claims to be a psychic you have to look at it seriously you can't brush it aside so you do have to keep these things in mind and you do have to keep them as part of the equation 
Now, like I say, for the most part, most of the people that I have met, they're charlatans, absolutely charlatans out to make a buck off other people's misfortunes. But there are a handful of individuals out there who I believe have some kind of insight into this thing. All right. Let me ask you the question that's going to occur to people who listen to the show. Whether it's your wife or one of these other people, would you connect them to us and maybe we could work together towards finding a way to consider what they do and maybe even talk to them on the air? Well, I, I could surely give you a very famous name of someone who I respect their work tremendously. Uh, and I could certainly do that, yes. Jane Doherty, for example, I don't know if you've ever heard of her. No. Jane Doherty uh, sat me down at an event in Gettysburg. It was a conference that we were at. And she gave me some very specific information about my dead grandfather that there was no way she could have known. No way she could have known. And it, she walked along. She didn't know me from Adam when she did it. And she gave me very, very accurate information, and she gave me some information that only he would have known. So, And she has written several books. She, she has been on several TV shows and things. And, and she'll be the first to tell you that some days she gets it very clear, and some days she doesn't. But she impressed me with the information she gave me. And then I became a friend of hers, got to know her better, and have discussed a lot of different things about my own research with what goes on with mediums with her. Um, but I would say she's probably one of those that falls into the 75 to 80 percentile range as far as what she does. So the, the nature of the information she gave you is something you're absolutely positive there was no way she could have gleaned. Yeah, she couldn't have gotten in any other way. I mean, my grandfather died in 1962. Uh, I was a young young child when my grandfather died. Mm -hmm. But she gave me very specific information about him that she couldn't have known, that even my mother or father probably wouldn't have known because it was an event that took place between my grandfather and me when I was young. So, I mean, did it get my attention? Yes, it did. Did uh, it impress me? Yes, it did. It made me think that there was more to her than just the cold reading type, because she didn't ask me two questions. Mm. There's somebody here that has a message for you, and then she gave me the message, and I didn't have to say anything. She gave me all the information. Um, so when something like that happens, I, I can't dismiss it. I have to say, hey, there's something to this person. They have something. You know, they're picking something up. Um, it, is she 100%? No. I don't think anyone is. Uh, I think she does have a fairly high percentage rate, and, I, and she, she's the kind of person, she's never charged me a dime, but she has charged other people money for readings because that's what she does. Mm -hmm. But in my situation, she never charged me a dime for anything, and she gave me very specific information that she couldn't have known from any other any other source. David, so, let, well, here's a ahead. question about that. Well, this is something that um, I know in the past when we've spoken with certain people about this topic, a question that's come up in the case of uh, the scenario, for example, you just described where you have someone who's a medium, claims to be a medium, gives you this kind of information that they couldn't have gleaned any other way. But what's your thought about the following idea? Um, if, if there was somebody who was sufficiently psychic 
to be able to literally reach into your mind and pull information out, how would you then differentiate between somebody who had the ability of doing that and someone who said that they were receiving information from, let's say, a deceased relative? Not, not, I'm not trying to say that you know this idea of someone having the kind of psychic ability that would allow them to do that wouldn't be really interesting and anomalous, but... What's your thought about that concept that maybe some of the mediums are literally reaching in and doing mind reading, for real mind reading? It's certainly very possible. And what needs to be done, of course, is research. They need to do double-blind experiments, triple-blind experiments, and research this whole phenomena. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Gary Schwartz. Mm -hmm. Uh, He tried to do a lot of this stuff uh, in the late 90s. Um, and he he has pretty much been butchered by uh, the great Randy, for example, um, who I'm firmly convinced if something happened right in his face, he would never acknowledge the fact that it was something paranormal if it was. Um, but, uh, you know, just because you can recreate something in a laboratory doesn't mean that when you encounter it in the field that you have all that stuff you need together to recreate it in the field. There are things that occur that simply can be done over again or repeated with very sophisticated equipment, but in the conditions where it was initially encountered, that equipment wasn't there. So just to be able to say you could duplicate it doesn't really explain it away as something that's duplicated. It just explains that it's possible to duplicate it using a lot of expensive equipment, which wasn't present the first time it happened. In Dr. Swartz's case, the more he did his research, the more he made it harder on the subjects. Uh, the last series of, of question and answer situations they did, he wasn't even directly involved. The mediums were taking questions from telephone callers from someone who was giving them information. In other words, it was three or four times removed from anyone that had the actual information. Right. And yet some of these people were getting 65 75% hit rates on it. So, I mean, there needs to be more of that, and, and not just, you know, one person doing the experiments. There needs to be hundreds of people doing these types of experiments and comparing the data to see where it is, where the, what the truth is in the matter. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't, you know, pretend to be the be-all, know-all about the work that I do. I can just defend my work because it's something I've done. As far as, and you have to defend it, believe me, you defend it every day. But that still doesn't mean that it's the right answer or the wrong answer. It just means that due to your experience and what you've encountered and how you've put that together, you are led to a conclusion based off that data. And based off of the data he collected, I have to say there's something to it and it needs more research. I can't say that it's boppycock and you can't, you can't accept any of it. I say there's something to it that needs to be refined, and they need to do more research. And unfortunately, in the paranormal field, everything needs more research because real scientific research is so rare in this field. I mean, hmm. absolutely rare. You know what? That's a point where we should basically break for the hour, and we'll come back with more of this discussion. For those who want to learn more about the things that you do, David, tell our listeners where they can get a hold of you or check you out online. Yeah, the, I have a website for my lab. It's 
spinvestigations.org, and uh, just like I said it, it's it's uh, like a spin investigation, uh, and I have a whole set on. There's a section on quantum mechanics. There's a section on our research, the equipment we build. And we don't try to sell you any equipment. We put the schematics and the diagrams online for you to duplicate because we encourage people to duplicate our work and to prove us wrong or to add more data to the data field. And we also have a listing not just for your name, which will take us to your site, but also to the New Jersey Paranormal Resource Group. We'll have David Roundtree back with us on the other side of the Paracast. So, Frank, what do you think about UFOs? I saw one once. I think they're out there. You know, what, what they are, I don't know. Well, I believe that something is out there. I think that those things that you see in the sky are only one small manifestation of a whole wide range of phenomena that people haven't properly named or have attributed the wrong source to. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. We have David Roundtree. We're talking about wormholes, hauntings, EMF, transportation between here and there. Now, through the centuries, we've had reports of strange creatures coming back and forth, winking in, winking out. Is that also a manifestation of the same sort of wormhole-type phenomena? I mean, I can only speculate on that because I don't have any firsthand experience with it. But it's certainly very plausible that that could be one of the reasons why we don't find the bodies of the bones of these creatures, and yet so many people see them and give accurate descriptions of them. I think there's been an established pattern of high EMF with UFOs. So, I mean, I've seen a UFO once in my lifetime. I was in the Air Force, and I learned very quickly when you're in the Air Force, you don't tell people you saw a UFO um, because they make it very unpleasant for you. But uh, I saw a UFO. It made the instruments go haywire in the aircraft that we were in. Uh, the aircraft had instrumentation that used various forms of electromagnetism as part of their operation, and, of course, it sent them jabberwocky. So I have to say that EMF, certainly uh, low-frequency EMF, is something that is associated with UFO sightings, as well as just about any other sighting. Now, I can't tell you about the animals and things because I've actually never really gone on a hunt for Yeti, you know, or Bigfoot or anything. But uh, from the things that I've read and from things I've followed with other people in their research is that there are EMF anomalies associated with these things. And I think the EMF anomaly occurs when the door opens or the door closes. When the door opens, that EMF propagates into our environment, and that's when we measure it. And when the event ends, it stops, and we no longer get that EMF that we were measuring before. 
Well, I, I have a very, very specific question for you about that. Okay. Let's say you had a cell phone with a camera in it. And let's say, for argument's sake, that somewhere in front of the area of the camera, within visual range, some sort of, let's call it for the sake of convenience, an interdimensional opening appeared, or a gap. Would the manifestation of EMF coming from that potentially affect the sensor in the camera that would adjust the... Um, the iris of the camera to compensate. Would, would the would the camera pick this EMF up as an increase in photons or light information and change the exposure of the camera, theoretically? Oh, let me tell you what I've encountered because I've encountered something very interesting along those lines. Uh, okay. I was doing an investigation at a house in Flemington, New Jersey, that was right on the river. Uh, it had a lot of history associated with the house. But it had a very high level of EMF in the house, and it, and it turned it out that it was from the wiring in the house. It was naturally occurring EMF. But when we photographed the electrical panel with regular digital cameras, we got this kind of greenish, it was almost like a fluorescent greenish fog around the electrical service. Now, we went back to that house on several occasions, and several different makes of digital cameras captured the same phenomena around the switch box. So that would lead me to believe that if an EMF field were strong enough, it would definitely affect the way the camera is viewing the scene that it's viewing. In other words, that chip that's in there is being affected in its color mode so that a certain color, in this case kind of a fluorescent green, was keying up and over-chromatizing all the other colors in the scene due to that EMF. Now, we didn't make a big deal out of it at the time because it was 60 cycles. I mean, we dismiss any EMF that's 60 cycles. I mean, there's so much of it in the environment from commercial power and everything else that you just can't give it any credence. But I thought it was very fascinating that if 60 cycles could do that in that kind of a concentration, and we were reading like 30 gauss coming off this electrical panel. It was extremely high. What would it be like if it was a lower frequency? What would it be a different color? You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. To encounter something of that magnitude, which has led me now to set up a series of experiments where I'm using a coil to generate EMF and a you know an oscillator to pick the right frequency and to play around with it, but I can't generate a high enough level, I think, to get it to do that. At least not yet, I haven't been able to. Um, but I thought that that was kind of an interesting finding because even though we dismissed it as being 60 cycles, it definitely affected the way the camera photographed the scene. It now, altered the photograph. Pr presumably, if you went in and took a photograph of that same control panel with a film camera because of the way that film is designed to interact with light, it's very possible you wouldn't see this. It's exactly possible you wouldn't see it. Right. Because it's using a completely different principle altogether. Right. Well, And that's the one thing that we have to keep in mind with digital cameras. They are more than just cameras. They are actually sensors. 
and they sense all across the light spectrum from ultraviolet to infrared, whereas you require special film in order to do that with a film camera. In other or, words, or especially processed film, or let's say film that it's chilled to a very low, low temperature, uh, which is an old trick of people who do very serious astronomy photography, where there's, there's a technique where you basically take certain types of film stock, it doesn't work with all film, and what you do is you, you freeze it down, you basically end up essentially hacking the film. Right. To to give you different frequency response and to give you different types of, of tonal response. And right. I had a friend deeply involved with astronomy photography. This was one of his tricks, a very closely guarded trick, I should say. Um, it's also a very hard to control trick. Absolutely. Uh, because of the uh, different mix of emulsifiers that are in the film when it's manufactured. First is that does he have the absolute temperature correct? And then all the way through to the development baths have to be temperature controlled as well. So it is a kind of generalized modification of the film. When I started out, we used infrared film, you know, like real infrared film that was designed to take heat as, a, as its source to take the mm -hmm. photograph. The problem with it was is the developing, well, the film itself was very expensive. But then developing the film was just extraordinary. You know, it was 150 bucks a roll to develop the film. Ouch. Because of the, the processing costs. But when you got that film back, you saw temperature differentiations, much like these FLIR cameras do today. But what people have to realize is, is you're seeing the temperature as it's reflected off the surface of something. In other words, to try to find a cold spot with this type of photography ain't going to happen because it works by reading temperature reflection, not ambient temperature. So a lot of people don't understand that. So they think they can get one of these FLIR cameras, which uses the same technology, only they use it just digitized, and they think they're going to be able to find a ghost by, you know, finding a lack of temperature. Well, all they're going to see is temperature differentiations on the surfaces of things. Right, they're not seeing absolutes. To, they're seeing rel right. They're basically seeing relative values, not absolute right. values. It's, it's designed to specifically ignore ambient temperature. It's designed to filter that out. So I always find that kind of funny. But using the, as you were taking, coming back to the film part, using the film is a much greater medium to have as evidence because it's a lot more difficult to doctor film without leaving telltale signs of doctoring than it is with digital cameras. Digital cameras are very easy to doctor the images to them and never leave any artifact whatsoever to make anyone think it was photoshopped or anything else. I've seen people do it. So it's also very difficult to do that to 35-millimeter film. Difficult, but... Doctor, well, uh, it's difficult, but not impossible, and, and actually... It's not impossible, but it right. requires someone with an intimate knowledge of developing film, which you well, don't sure. find very much anymore. Well, I mean, uh, uh, it used to uh, kill uh, me because people would take a digital photograph and they would peel the layers off. That doesn't really tell you anything. It doesn't tell you anything, because once you save a digital photograph as a JPEG format... You are generating that shit you're peeling off. It's not a product of the camera. You've already merged all the layers. You can't demerge those layers anymore. You're creating new layers that you peel off. So well, it really doesn't tell you anything. 
And and that's the sad part about all of this stuff is that photographs really can't be used as evidence. Video really can't be used as evidence. I mean, you need to have so much more besides that if you want anyone to believe you've encountered something. It's not funny because it's just too easy to doctor the data. One of the things we do, we're using a... a um, uh, a data logger now where we put like 16 sensors into a software program that actually correlates everything in real time. So you can literally go back and you can track where an event takes place and see what the environment did. To find someone who knows enough to hack the software and put the right information in to make it look that way is astronomical. So that's really going to be the wave of the future, digital data logging, because it's very difficult to hack that very difficult and uh, what it's going to take is all these things combined together in real time to actually show that something really has occurred because there's people that are never going to believe you know anything ever happened and that's fine I mean as a scientist I feel I have to be objective number one but I also have to have an open mind number two and having that point of view has served me very well because I have seen things and said, no, no one's never going to look at this and buy this is real. But I know it's real, which will steer me to another technique in order right. to further prove what I've experienced. You know what I'm saying? A- absolutely, David. And one of the things that we, we certainly have said many times on the show is that um, photographic evidence of any sort, we're at a point in history where uh, photographic evidence by itself should absolutely be inadmissible in a court of law. We completely agree with that statement. Along the same lines, uh, you know, we've said on the show before that a JPEG image is a compressed image. You have, by definition, on a JPEG image, regardless of the sourcing of it, you have indeed stripped away uh, a certain amount of information. Interestingly enough, the amount of information that you're stripping away the, the history of the JPEG format deals with the removal of detail from images that would other, otherwise be lost in a print reproduction environment in order right. to compress images to be sent across dial-up phone lines, like 9600 baud lines. That was right. the origin of the JPEG format, JPEG, which stands for Joint Photographic Expert Group, right. the specific uh, technical group that came up with the JPEG format. So the thing is, we always tell people that if you're going to use a digital camera to capture any kind of information, you should always save the file in the raw file format. You should be certainly using a camera that generates raw files. Uh, the reason being that a raw file is simply a straight data dump from the CCD in the camera. It, it's basically been untouched. And uh, not so much that you're pulling layers off, but basically, if you've got a raw image, chances are that camera also is able to capture more than eight bits of information per channel, not layer, but the RGB channels that make up the image. Um, not to mention, when you convert, you add artifacts to the picture as well. Well, it really depends on your conversion process, and, and this is uh, way beyond the scope of this show. This is a topic yeah. I'd be happy to talk about, but... The, yeah, the, the, the specific conversion process of, of opening a raw file into, let's say, something like Photoshop involves on the part of the raw camera plugin in Photoshop, a certain amount of sharpening happens, a certain amount of noise reduction happens, and actually the, the a reality of... of averaging, a whole lot of averaging happens. Well, well some, some, average. 
Right. And, and so you have to look at the quality of the raw processor you're using. And for anybody interested in this topic, it would behoove them to learn about Adobe's Lightroom software, which, exactly. as it turns out, it uses slightly better stuff than Photoshop to parse a raw file. That that also is something that is changing dramatically now. And I think yeah. good chance we're going to see Lightroom and Photoshop really come up to par this year in terms of that specific aspect of the software. Well, but, that would be good. Yeah. The bottom line is, and I agree with you, is that a photograph in and of itself doesn't prove anything. Is there a secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies, paranormal activity, and Fortean phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free, sent right to your mailbox, plus a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MrUFO at WebTV.net. Find out what they don't want you to know. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. David Roundtree, paranormal investigator, and now we're exploring the nitty-gritty of photography with David and David. <laughs> and, rush. And, it, and it is. I mean, it's, excuse it's, me, it's Rush and David. We're going to rush to hear from David. Yeah, there you go. And that's truly a sad thing because most of the evidence that's presented today is photographic, and. I have seen so many good pieces of art, is probably the most uh, delicate way of saying it, Oh yeah. appear on websites that uh, does us more harm than good when it comes to actually analyzing the evidence. Um, well, that's certainly so true, David. That, uh, you know, yeah. We've seen a proliferation of hoaxes in all the paranormal realms of people. Oh, absolutely. Basically. absolutely. Yeah. No, yeah, no, photographic evidence without... A really solid backstory without uh, witness testimony, and and by the way, for those of you who are ever going to go out and try to capture photographic evidence, take three cameras, and here's how you do it: you have someone shooting the situation, you have someone at a different angle shooting the situation, and then you have a third person with a third camera shooting the two other shooters, so that we can see the context under which the visual evidence is being gathered. That's right. You have that, then you've got something. What, one of the things that we developed when we were, you know, one of the most controversial subjects in the paranormal field right now is orbs. 
and rightly so. Mm. Uh, most people accept what they get on a photographic face value, and they don't take it any further. And it's you know there's two essential camps in the orb camp. There's the every orb you capture is the spirit of some dead person, and then there's the camp that it's all you know uh, artificial particulate matter within four inches of the lens that the flash is lighting up. And I've always kind of taken the stance that that, uh, the truth probably lies somewhere between those two extremes. Yes, certainly the majority of orbs that appear in a photograph are dust orbs or moisture in the air or these other things. So consequently, you need to set up something that eliminates that as being a possibility and re-photographing the area and trying to eliminate dust as being the cause. Well, one of the things we did was we actually set up a two-camera shoot where you have a camera on a tripod and another camera on a tripod, and they're about four feet apart, but they're focused on the same spot in a room, and you take the picture. Well, if it's dust, you're going to see it in one camera and not necessarily the other one. However, if you see something that's in the same position in one camera as it is in the other, and these cameras are three or four feet apart, and chances are it's not dust, it's something else. One of the things that we have done is taken it a step further and saying, okay, suppose there is such a thing as a real orb, what would it be? And my concept of it would be it would have to be some form of cold plasma. It would have to be stabilized by a very strong electromagnetic field uh, to keep it together so it wouldn't immediately discharge to Earth, much like ball lightning. And uh, so we developed this device that actually is a, a vacuum cleaner, a really big shop vac, with a grid inside the tube that allows us to capture anything as small as a, a 16th of an inch in diameter across the grid and have that grid wired to a multimeter so that we can test for any potential. I have actually captured something twice that burn out the fuse in the meter. So... We know that there's something that has a very high potential that may print as an orb on certain cameras that's probably made up of cold plasma. As such, it has a very, very uh, high voltage associated with it, but a very low current. So if you actually touched one, you probably wouldn't feel it. It would be much like, you know, static electricity where, you know, you get 70 or 80,000 volts on your body and you get a little spark when you touch something. But the point of it is, while we've only encountered it twice, that's twice more than it's ever been encountered in any other method before. So we know that there's a possibility that there may be cold plasma. If there is, this would also feed into the fact that there is exotic matter mixing at this portal that opens up. And in the process of creating a gamma bombardment, increasing the ionic uh, counts, it could also be releasing this plasma as a byproduct of that matter mixing. So, I mean, there's a method to our overall madness, and we're not trying to point out one thing to prove another. Moreover, we're trying to point out everything that we can find that may be related to it. And that was the whole reason we got involved in the whole orb argument in the first place. And I'll have to tell you, 95, maybe even 98% of all orbs captured are probably dust. But if people would start using multiple cameras to shoot the same regions, 
right. simultaneously taking photos, they would know that for themselves. Right, absolutely. It would be and painfully and obvious. <laughs> Well, we also recommend very strongly to people that if they're going to do this, they use a digital single lens reflex um, so that they actually in the viewfinder see what's coming through the lens. This is something that's come up many times when people have come up to me, right, with orb photos. And I'll typically look at them and say, let me guess you, sh- you shot this with a point and shoot camera, at which point they think I'm psychic. Yeah. And I'll say to them, yeah. no, this is pretty much what happens. And, and, and I'll say... That's well, right. the qualifying That's right. Well, the, the qualifying question is: Let me guess. You didn't see this in the viewfinder when you took the picture, and they so they say, "Yeah, that's right. How did you know that? That must mean it's a, it's anomalous." It's like, yeah. no, no, no. You you, you didn't it's see in the it. Field of the flash, but it's not in the field of your eye your eye opening. It's not even that, David. It's just that when they're looking through the viewfinder of a point and shoot camera. They're not seeing what's coming through the lens. That's the whole point of a single lens. Because yeah, they're looking through a separate lens. They're yeah. looking through a separate lens that's not even on the same focal path as the lens that's taking the picture. Absolutely. And these things have to occur. They don't occur beyond four inches from the lens. They have right. to occur where the light picks it up and causes the autofocus to try to focus it. That's what creates right. the orb in the first place. That's right. And and there's there's actually... There's a, another technique that some people developed that I thought was pretty ingenious where they actually took these long, they look like a long flower pot, and actually mounted it over the lens itself. I figured out a way to beat it, though. So, so, so I said, it's a good idea. I said, but you, you, you can't take it as an absolute because something can get inside that flower pot and be floating around in there, and you can still pick it up. Even though the flash is isolated outside the flower pot, you could still pick up enough of ambient light for you to get a ghost of an orb in there. I think using the multiple camera shoot is a great idea no matter what kind of evidence you're looking for. Absolutely. Because it takes into account operators as well as equipment. That's right. So in doing that, I think no matter what the nature of the evidence is you're trying to collect, if you use a multiple camera shoot and and over the fields of overlapping coverage, that is the way to go about it. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. Hi, this is Don Ecker and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that George Snorri? We have David Roundtree joining us this week. We're looking at the paranormal about hauntings, wormholes, orbs. Okay, in any case where there is a quote-unquote genuine orb, do you always see it visually? No, not necessarily. See, part of the part of the thing is, if we assume, and this is an assumption, if we assume that it's cold plasma, it may be invisible to monochromatic light anyway. 
and only once it's bombarded with the photons from the flash will it become momentarily visible as it absorbs those photons. Now, it's going to shed those photons just as rapidly as it absorbs them. So unless you are an extremely talented individual and keep your eye open through a single reflex lens the entire course of the photographic shot, you will miss it. You won't see that orb light up because it is just as fast in, in, in gathering those photons as it is as repelling them. I mean, now I have visually seen orbs before. I, I can't tell you what they were because I was not close to them. I saw them basically. They could have been fireflies, to be honest with you. But, you know, we thought we saw something moving. It was light. I didn't see any fireflies anywhere else, but that doesn't mean it couldn't have been fireflies. You know what I'm saying? What time of year was it? It was in the fall. It was in the fall. And we didn't see fireflies anywhere else. But this one area we were at, we saw this glowing light that moved. Okay, well, I didn't put a lot of weight to it because I don't have enough information to put a lot of weight to it. Mm -hmm. But it could have conceivably been an orb. Most of the orbs that I have encountered that weren't dust, which were in the two cases that I'm referring to, they were not visible to the naked eye because we weren't even looking through the cameras. We had the cameras set up to take photographs at the same time by pushing a button, a shutter release. So neither operator was standing behind the camera. They were on tripods, and one person pushed the button that took both the pictures at the same time. So I can't tell you if they became visible to the, to the eye, but I can tell you that most dark plasma or cold plasma occurs in ultraviolet in the ultraviolet range of light, in other words, in the UV range of light. So it may not reflect enough light to be seen anyway, if that's what it is. And again, these are things that are, I mean, we're just touching the surface of this. I mean, I can't tell you for sure that's what it is. All I can say is, is there's something more to the orb question than dust, and this is what we know, all right? It may turn out that it's something entirely different, but to blow a fuse on a meter, once you suck one into the, the measuring grid, it had to have at least 6,000 volts of potential in order to blow that fuse. So whatever it was had a very high potential to it. Now, it probably had a very low current associated with it, but it had a very high potential. So that's why I'm leaning towards it being cold plasma. There's no significant temperature change. There is a tremendous amount of EMF increase when these things appear. Uh, we have been able to associate a rise in EMF in anyway with, with the two that we captured. So, you know, it's certainly inconclusive at this point, but very promising. You know, it looks like, hey, maybe we might be on the right track on some of this stuff. But like everything else, paranormal activity is so transitory. You have literally got to be ready for anything all the time or you miss something. And we miss stuff a lot of times. And it's just good luck that we've captured the few things that we've captured when we captured them. So the jury's way far from being in on any of this stuff. But the things that we are seeing are leading us down a research path to suppose that these very natural occurring things may be caused by some unnatural occurrence. And the real secret's going to be is to study the interface where it happens and find out what's really going on there.
Well, either an unnatural occurrence or a natural occurrence of a class that we don't, we're not yet aware of. Exactly. See, I'm under the firm belief that all this stuff is natural. I, I, I'm under the firm belief that everything we're encountering in the paranormal field is just as normal as everything else. It's just we don't understand the nature of it. We don't understand the mechanics of what's going on. And I think once we do, I think everything's going to fall into place rather nicely. But until then, I mean, like, I don't believe in ghosts, for example. I mean, I, I think that not in the traditional sense of the word ghost, I think it's possible that uh, our energy continues on as pure energy and that we maintain our consciousness. But I don't see that as, you know, Casper the ghost coming down. I see that as an energy that is a measurable phenomena. And if we can find the right tools to get that data, we're going to understand a lot more about it than we do now. David, um, I know that people have expressed concerns in the past of you, um, regarding the use of EMF meters. And uh, something I've seen people refer to specifically is the issue of using an EMF meter in a magnetically diverse environment and and people i've heard people say well you know essentially if you want to use an emf meter to try to read something anomalous you better be doing it inside of a faraday cage what's your response uh, to something like that i mean is there a way to basically calibrate an emf meter to basically get rid of what would be considered sort of uh background noise or or naturally occurring emf and and this is the problem with emf meters you know what we use EMF meters for? We stick them in screenshots of video cameras so that if something moves, we have a record of it on screen of something moving as far as the, the EMF fluctuating. The thing about an EMF meter is you don't know the frequency. All you know is the field strength. And that really doesn't tell you a whole hell of a lot because 90% of the time you're going to be reading fluctuations coming from the wall outlets. We use... EMF meters, but not as the traditional data collecting device. What we use is a handheld oscilloscope and a MagCheck 95 sensor that's available for magnetic sciences. I think they cost about 100 bucks. But what that does is, is it specifically picks up EMF from around, I think it's 20 hertz to 3,000 hertz, which also includes the voice range. So when we use that, we're actually looking on a meter, a scope meter, and it's giving us the actual wave pattern. It's not just telling us that we've got EMF and that it's this strong. We're actually looking at the waveform itself so we can say, oh, this is 60 cycles. You know, there's nothing to it. Or, hey, this is 15 cycles. Uh, this is looking a little bit like a brainwave pattern. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. The, the EMF meter is an incomplete device. Right. They are designed to tell you if you have 60-cycle EMF bleed over in your environment. That's what they were built for. Now, they are nice tools in that they tell you that you've got a field strength change, but if you don't know what the frequency of that EMF is, it's really useless information. It doesn't count for much. Let me ask you kind of an offhanded question here. Does, sure. Maybe we're in a situation here where we need to devise new measuring devices because we're just using conventional stuff that we've repurposed to checking out the paranormal. Maybe Absolutely. put some 
smart engineers together and say, what do we need to do to figure out what's really going on? Absolutely. Absolutely. And EMF is one of those areas that we need to measure differently. Like I say, you need to know what the waveform looks like, and you need to know what frequency it's at. Because if you're picking up 60 cycles, that's meaningless because we're bombarded with 60-cycle EMF all day long in our homes and our offices. When you pick up 10 cycles on EMF, well, that's really something to look at because there's nothing around us that's generating 10 hertz of EMF. There's nothing generating 14 hertz unless you count your brain waves, which your skull is keeping them from propagating out into the environment to read those. So if you're measuring pure energy and it looks like a brain wave, what if that is somebody's consciousness that's passed on that you're looking at in that meter? You don't know. And the only way to know is to use multiple sensors like this and to try to correlate all the information with the stuff that's going on in the environment. Now, there's some things in the environment that are fine. You know, we need to measure temperature. We need to measure uh, barometric pressure. We need to measure humidity. There's a lot of things that we need to measure. We need to measure ion counts. And not because ion counters are not accurate, because they're not. You're not looking for an exact count. You're looking for a ratio of increase. In other words, if, if we measure uh, 1,500 cubic meters or, or per million or whatever of ions, and then suddenly you're reading 750,000, well, that's a significant ratio change. We don't care how accurate the actual number count is. We're actually looking at the ratio of charged particles and how they increase versus how they were statically before the event you know, began. So there are, there are certain things that are very useful tools. Radiation meters. I mean, it's very important to measure radiation, and it's very important to know which radiation you're measuring because uh, most meters will read all the different levels of radiation, and you have to know that in order to block out alpha, you use a piece of paper over the receptor. If you want to block out beta, you use a piece of tinfoil over it. And, you know, if something still penetrates after you've got tinfoil on it, you're dealing strictly with gamma radiation. So no one teaches these, these kids out there that are doing this stuff that, that that's the rules, that that's how you use this equipment. So while some of the equipment is designed to do other things with, they are helpful parts of the environment that we need to correlate with what's going on. On the other hand, EMF meters are essentially they're a waste of money because you can't tell what frequency they're at and you can't tell what the waveform looks like, and that's very important. EMF is a big part of the paranormal equation, but the frequency of it and the amplitude of it and the actual shape of the waveform is really where the guts of the data is, not just how, how strong it is. I mean, I don't know how many times you've seen someone dancing up and down their tiptoes saying, I got a spike, I got a spike. Well, it's meaningless because you don't know what spiked. You just know that some frequency of EMF just went up. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really tell you anything. You have to really know what the frequency of the EMF is. That's a big problem. It's just like when they first came out with these you know, these IR thermometers, you know, everybody thought that was the best thing since apple butter. But again, an IR thermometer is only going to measure surface temperature. It's not going to measure ambient temperature. And you need to measure ambient temperature if you're going to find the proverbial coal spot floating around in the room. You need to be able to find that blob of gold. And the only way to do that is with an ambient temperature meter.
there's good equipment out there, but it doesn't give you the whole picture. And obviously we have to do new stuff because paranormal research hasn't advanced any in the last 30 years. It's advanced very little because people are using the same old techniques, the same old equipment, and coming to the same old conclusions. Well, yeah, you know, your house is haunted. Well, how can you tell that? You know, you don't know that for sure, and yet you're declaring that that's the case. No, we need to know at a fundamental level what's going on in the room when this stuff is happening. And like I say, we started building stuff, and we put the schematics up online, and what we try to do is assemble different pieces of equipment into a configuration that will do something very specific. And then we share that with other researchers and we encourage them to duplicate what we're doing and say, hey, tell us if we're on the right track, tell us if we're all wet. Uh, we could be dealing with something completely artifactual based on our own making here. So the more people that duplicate what we do, the, the better off our evidence stands or it mutates into what it needs to mutate into versus us just holding it all to ourselves and closely guarding it like it's some treasure, because that's foolish. Absolutely. So you inferred before that your wife had seen a full-body apparition. I was wondering if you could give us some details about that. Well, she was at Gettysburg, and uh, she was at one of the old, it was an old home that had been turned into like a museum. Mm-hmm. And there was a stairway that kind of went up in the building and then ended at a wall that had been walled off. So the door that used to be there was no longer there. It was all walled up. But she had looked up, and she saw a woman in period dress, and she thought, oh, it's a reenactor or something up there. But she was standing by the foot of the stairs, and she talked to the woman behind the counter, and she looked back up because she was mentioning what a great costume this woman had, and the woman wasn't there anymore. And the woman behind the counter started to smile, this wry smile, and she said, oh, uh, well, you met the former owner of the house. Uh, she's no longer with us. And so my wife was a little freaked out by that. Uh, but she had actually saw the woman just like it was an ordinary. She thought it was a reenactor standing up there at the stairs. But she was at the foot of the stairs, so nothing could have come down past her. She took her eyes away for a moment to talk to the clerk, and when she turned back around, of course, there was no one on the stairs. That was her experience. It unnerved her. She uh, is a psychologist as far as her education goes. I mean, it's very difficult for her to put a lot of stock into the things she feels and experiences because she believes that the mind can play a lot of really strange tricks on you. But that was one of the things that stood out with her. And eventually she realized that she could sense things that other people couldn't sense. Now, she doesn't, like I say, she doesn't do it for a living. She's very religious. She doesn't have anything to do with it. She rarely goes with me on an investigation anymore unless there's something really weird going on that she wants to, her curiosity gets to her. That was just one of those things that she felt that and Gettysburg is a tremendously active place. Uh, I've had friends of mine that were reenactors that have told me of things that have happened to them there. I've been there several times and actually recorded a cannon artillery bombardment that no one heard, but our recorders picked it up. Um, and, and things like that. So any place where you have a lot of people dying in very disturbing conditions, I think it leaves a mark on the land. And I think whether it's residual or whether it's something that's interactive, that energy is there waiting to be tapped. Well, you know, that, that ties into something I brought up on the show before, David, which is that based on that, I've been very, very cautiously awaiting and carefully monitoring 
the emergence of these kinds of stories around Ground Zero in New York City. Oh, you yeah. think if, I, if I, there was ever going to be a place that was going to get haunted by people having very disturbing deaths, that would be the place. That would be the place. And actually, there is evidence of things going on there already. Really? They took, they took the bodies over to a church that was not very far away. Sort of well, it's place. right across the street, actually. Trinity Church is right across the street. Right. Trinity Church has had numerous situations reported. Really? Of things going on there. And well, now, wait a minute. But hold on. Hold on. After 9-11? St- after 9-11. Saying- so, but After 9/11. there's a reason I ask about this, um, because well, New York has a long and colorful history of this kind of stuff anyway. Well, no, absolutely. Uh, no, clearly. But so, here's the thing about that particular church. The church is, is right on Broadway and it's right. I mean, it's it's a half a block away from where the towers were. But in the back of this church, there is a really old cemetery like so many churches. Have. What was really interesting about what happened at that church on 9-11 was that, uh, to my knowledge, not a single tombstone in that cemetery was even, like, disturbed. Nope. And we're, ta- we're talking about stuff falling right, you know, the Twin Trade Center towers came down right across the street. Oh, I know, I know. Really kind of an odd thing. And the reason that I think there's no reports of any activity at the site is because it's still under a vast amount of construction. There's still, like, huge construction going on there. Um, I know the last time I was over there on the PATH train, I mean, literally there was plastic taped to the walls so you couldn't see out of the PATH cars into the the crater, which is where the former Twin Towers stood. So they've got it blocked off so you can't really see into it, and there's a tremendous amount no. of construction going on there. No, actually, you can. You, you can. I mean, if you're at street level, you can totally look down into the pit. Well, yeah, I've been there. I've just, been there recently. The path yeah. station's not at street level, though. The path station comes in. Uh, well, that's yeah, that's street. down underground, right? 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 Right. And the last time that I was over in the area, I was over in the area. I took the path train over there because I had business over there, and uh, they had it all walled in with plastic. You know, you can't see through it type plastic, so you couldn't really see what was going on in there, which I thought was kind of strange. But it, it's still a tremendous amount of, of construction going on there. So, I mean, I think nothing's going to really become Rare's Ugly Head until they get the new building in place and it settles down and it starts getting routine. Then, I think, is when you're going to see some things happen there. Well, uh, to which I say good luck to whoever was going to own that building, get, getting people to move in there. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730. Or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is The Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next.
before we yeah. decide who's going to move in and before we start the Paracast real estate company to basically rent out haunted office spaces, we have David Roundtree. We're talking about the paranormal, hauntings, orbs, strange phenomena of all sorts. Well, you name it, we've touched on it, I think. Yeah, I mean, New York City has a long and colorful history of paranormal activity. Some of the old museums that are there that are like in these really, really old turn-of-the-1800s-type buildings are supposedly very active. I have yet to do an investigation in New York City, and I live, you know, I live in New Jersey, which is right across the river from it. But uh, I have done some stuff on Staten Island. I have done some stuff, peripheral stuff. And uh, there's a lot of activity from, particularly from the Revolutionary War as well as the Civil War in that area. So it would not surprise me if when they open up that new building, they don't have some kind of activity of some kind going on there. Well, yeah, I mean, you really would, based on what you said, you know, coming full circle to your point, uh, where you've had a large amount of very extreme emotional, specifically negative emotional activity, this definitely seems to increase the potential for hauntings in that Absolutely. light. Yeah, I mean, Absolutely. it'd be hard to think of a place that would... I, well, actually, I no, I can think of a place where... being right. active. You know what I'm saying? I'm sorry? I couldn't imagine it not being active there. Right. So, and, and I know, I mean, I worked in other buildings in New Jersey that didn't have anything to do with a lot of people dying, but had something to do with a lot of people being buried there in an area. And a building was built over top of where these people were buried. And late at night, the building makes weird noises that you can't explain by normal building noises. And I can't help but think that it has something to do with the fact that you know, this building was built on top of all these mass graves. You know, you've got that, and, and there's the old Curtis Wright building, which I don't know if you've heard of that. No. But the Curtis Wright building, they actually used to build the, the aircraft there during World War II. They have a complete underground complex, but in the back of the main building is a cemetery that is very, very old and has been there since before the Curtis Wright building was there. And one of the deals that they made when they built that building was that they would take care of that cemetery. And I'll tell you, a lot of people have had weird experiences in that area after dark at that cemetery. When, I don't know, I, I, I've, I know people that have taken things out of graveyards and crap like that on a lark, you know, and I, yeah, I just don't do stuff like that. <laughs> well, what about the after dark aspect, David? I mean, what's your feeling about I me? Mean, because that, that does sound like a psychological component, I think, to a lot I'm of sure people. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. I, I have found really nothing to correlate uh, the whole darkness thing with any of this stuff. I mean, if something's going to manifest, it's going to manifest whether it's daylight or darkness. I have found that there seems to be reportedly more activity late at night, usually around 3 a.m. in the morning. Whether that's psychological, I mean, if you think about it, when you wake up in the middle of the night, it's always around 3 a.m. What is there about uh, 3 a.m.? I mean, it's the same thing I, we heard during the last election. Who do you want answering the phone at the White House at 3 a.m.? Yeah, why 3 a.m., you know? I have no idea. All I know is, is when I wake up in the middle of the night, it's usually around 3 a.m. for no particular reason. And, and I always thought that was kind of an unusual mystery. Now, there's tons and tons of people that have ideas as to what it means and everything else, but no one really knows what it means. And, and the thing is, is for some reason, the paranormal activity seems to peak at 3 in the morning, and I don't have any explanation for why that's even possible. 
because I've encountered things in the daytime. I've encountered things in daylight. I mean, we don't even turn off lights during an investigation unless there is an ungodly amount of 60-cycle noise from the electrical, you know, fixtures and stuff. We do investigations with lamps on and lights on and everything else. I mean, if something's going to manifest, it's going to manifest, and it really doesn't need the darkness to do that. But for some reason, there's people that firmly believe that, you know, you got to turn off all the lights and, you know, stay until 3 in the morning to make sure you catch everything. And, yeah, but that belief doesn't mean anything. I mean, right, ultimately, people, right, that's what you're saying. I mean, it's a belief, but it has no, no foundation in reality. No, I, I can't put any weight to it. I can't put any weight to it whatsoever, because like I say, I have had things happen in broad daylight. I have had things happen in the darkness, in the, in the light. I mean, like I say, we don't even turn off the lights anymore unless there's an unusual large amount of noise for it coming from the electrical service in the house. We don't even turn the lights off. We walk around so we don't kill ourselves with flashlights doing our, doing our work. And we have just as much evidence as we would if we were to turn the lights off, probably more because we're not paying attention to falling on our face or tripping over something like we would if the lights were out. Mm -hmm. So we're actually probably getting more by leaving the lights on than, than we are by turning them off. So I, I can't correlate any of that. I know people say it. I think it's akin to an old wives' tale. I mean, I haven't seen any data to back it up, so I don't know. What is this thing about old wives? It's always an old wife. Is this some kind of anti-feminist <laughs> thing? I always wonder about that. You know, it's not an old man's tale. It's an old wife's tale or an old husband's well, tale. We don't get that either. It's traditional. Old wives used to tell tales because the theory was they didn't have anything else to do but beat clothes with a rock and all this other drudgery. So when they'd get together, they would gossip and they would tell stories. And one of the stories they would tell is, you know, how to cure... You know, the common cold or what was good for your arthritis or whatever. And, of course, I'm sure ghost stories filtered into it at some point, and they all had their opinions on ghosts. I can tell you from personal experience, if you go to Virginia and you go to a public building and you talk to someone with the park services about the place being haunted, they'll tell you they don't know what you're talking about. They've never had anything like that happen at all. There'll be some old woman in line behind you that'll say, Come here, Sonny, and I'll tell you what really used to happen here when I was a little girl. And you'll get a fantastic story about what happened in that building from a woman that's 60 or 70 years old. So uh, I listen to old wives' tales, uh, <laughs> and I try to put them in their place, perspective, where they go. But it's funny, just about every old woman in Virginia that I've ever talked to has had a ghost story to tell me. Uh, because of that, whenever I go somewhere, I always talk to the old women that are associated with the property we're looking at. And I, I'll guarantee you, they come up with some very interesting stories about what went on at the property. I think it's like a folkloric treasure, number one. Uh, and number two, it, it, if you are investigating the place, it gives you some notions as to what to kind of look for and where to look for it at. So, you know, it's a tool like anything else. Do you think it's also the nature of men and women that women tend to be more verbal about things, whereas men tend to clam up more? Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I've noticed this. There are way more women in the field of paranormal research than there are men, number one. Uh, and number two, women talk. They talk amongst themselves. They talk to each other. They talk to everyone else. And men generally, and this is a generality. I know I'm going to get crucified for this, but generally men don't talk unless they got something to say. And, and even then, if they don't know who they're with, I mean, they won't say anything. Women are just interested in passing on the information they have. 
You know what I'm saying? They they want to share it with whoever's around them. And I look at that as, as, a, as a good thing because I've gotten a lot of very interesting and entertaining information by talking to elderly women associated with sites that I would be investigating. And I learned a tremendous amount where men could care less. I mean, I've talked to some men at, at sites, you know, that work there as handyman, and they'll say, yeah, well, something really weird happened to me down in the washroom, but it, it, it had to be something normal, you know. They'll explain it away, but boy, them women, man, they'll get you cackling and get you scared to death before they finish their story. So I've always liked uh, getting that side of the story on a haunted location. So there, there's something in your bio, David, on, on the website, on the spininvestigations.org site. There's an interesting... There's an interesting note, and we don't have much time left, but I was wondering if I could get you to just give us an idea about what this is, where you say, um, there's one sentence in particular saying, due to several encounters of a very negative nature from 85 to 87, David made the decision to concentrate on the scientific research consider uh, considering the phenomena, so uh, and not the metaphysical aspects of the events. What happened between 85 and 87, David? Well, I'm hoping to write a book about it one day. We, I was involved in, an, in a group of people, and I actually was like a, uh, I was a practicing shaman at the time. And we had been called in because people were having, this woman was having a real problem with her son in this house, her infant son. And we uncovered uh, something very dark uh, that was there, and it was... It was something that destroyed the lives of a lot of people that were in the group that I had at the time. Hmm. And I mean, I, I can't quantify it. It doesn't even make sense to me. And until I ran into the other person who survived it with me, who lives out in, in Nevada now, him and I have been trying to put it down in words as to what happened. And I have found that I have blocked out a lot of what happened. And as he has told me what has happened, it has come slowly started to come back. But we encountered something that I would say is probably a demonic in nature. Uh, it was old, old, old demonic in nature. I mean, I would say pre-Bible. I'm thinking probably uh, ancient Sumer or something of that nature. Um, and at the time when it happened, a lot of people flocked around us and helped us by giving us things that would help us but did not want to be involved with what we were doing, which was very weird. I mean, we had psychics to give us large crystals. We had you know, people giving us different things, tools of the trade, so to speak, but did not want to get involved directly with what we were dealing with. And in the end, um, I can't tell you what happened to anybody in the end, but one other person who seemed to have fared it well, and he's living in Nevada, like I say, but one girl had a, a tree fall on her, broke her leg in like nine places, and she was crippled for the rest of her life. Uh, another girl was in a head-on collision and was, I don't know if she survived or not, I lost touch with her. And a lot of the different people involved just had terrible, terrible things happen to them. And it just seemed too close for comfort uh, too, too, too much against the odds for that sort of thing to happen. Um, whatever we encountered, we managed to get rid of it, to drive it away. But I don't think it was a permanent type of driving it away. I think we might have backed it away for a time, but I, 
pretty sure it could probably come back. It was that strong. I'll tell you what, we're just about out of time. Tell our listeners where they can get a hold of you one more time. Uh, spinvestigations.org. And you can email me at ghosthunter underscore one underscore at uh, comcast.net. Thank you very much, David Roundtree, for joining us this week on the PowerCast. Thanks for having me. Thanks, David. The PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the PowerCast.